Hey, hey, how's your quarantine going? It's Seth Harwood back in your ear. Happy to be here. Happy that you're listening. Times are changing. Times are real strange. And they're changing. And this is episode four. I'm going to be reading chapters six and seven of As Much Protein as an Egg, the director's cut. If this is the first one you're hearing, you should go back and check out episode one, two, three, four. And basically how it goes is like this. I read a couple of chapters and then I talk a little bit about what's going on. Uh, And maybe we wind up with a little bit of an evolution of how quarantine is going over here in East Hampton. I hope you're doing well. I hope you and yours are all navigating this as best you can. Hope everyone's healthy and let's get into a little fiction. Let's have some fun and listen. So chapter six, Artemis Kellogg taught at a school called the Waldorf School. You didn't think he was going to work at a hardware store, did you? Teaching at the Waldorf meant he kept the same students right up from first grade all the way through middle school. They were now in the sixth grade. Since the kids had been together so long, they acted just like a big family. Being in a big family together meant they were comfortable making farts. Farts release a funny sound and a bad smell. They come from somebody's bottom. Most people actually like the smell of their own farts. In Kellogg's classes most days, students would fart. All of a sudden, a few boys would be cracking up in a corner. Girls would hold their noses and say, Ew! The girls acted like this about farting, except for Maggie. She would fart just as loud as the worst of the boys. By any account, Maggie was really an impressive farter. All of the other girls had stopped farting in class around the third grade. Now, Maggie was the only one. I would just like to interject here that as I'm recording this, it's a Sunday, and my alarm just went off to let me know that the Portuguese sweet bread that I'm making has just finished its first round of rising. Now I'm supposed to cut the thing in half and put it into two pans that I've buttered. I've never made Portuguese sweet bread in my life. I hope it turns out all right. I'm going to keep recording. Let that thing continue to rise. Artemis Kellogg stood outside of his apartment in San Francisco. He wondered where Maggie was. Maybe she was farting right now. Across the city in the gymnasium of the Waldorf School, Maggie farted. Kellogg wasn't at school today because he'd called in sick. He wasn't sick. Something important was going to happen, he thought. He'd thought this when he woke up. That's why he decided to call in sick. Sometimes Kellogg's brain chemicals made him think something important was going to happen. We'll just have to wait and see if his chemicals were right. I sure hope so, don't you? Boy, would this book be dull if nothing interesting happened to Artemis Kellogg. He's our hero, after all. Well, one of them. Artemis Kellogg thought it was the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur. It wasn't. Yom Kippur was coming later in the week. That was the Jewish holiday of atonement. You were supposed to atone for a whole year's worth of bad things by fasting for a day. Fasting meant not eating any food. Neither Artemis Kellogg 
nor any of his friends were Jewish. He had never fasted or atoned. Jewish people belonged to a religion called Judaism, which was a religion that went all the way back to the beginning of time. Jesus Christ was Jewish. That was before he told people he was the Son of God. He started his own religion then. Telling people you were the Son of God was actually a very good way to start a religion, as long as they didn't think your head was full of bad chemicals and you were crazy. A lot of people did not think Jesus Christ was lying when he said he was the Son of God. This was because he performed a few miracles. These days, people performed miracles all the time. They were called magicians and did not tell anyone they were the Son of God. Some people thought smartphones were miracles. My uncle Stanley thought his iPad was a miracle. Every time he turned it on, he said, It's a miracle! And so on. If you want to know more about the truth of lies in religion, you should read the book of you should read the books of Bakonin. As Artemis Kellogg, that's a book of religious texts, or a series of religious texts written by a Kurt Vonnegut character who shows up in Cat's Cradle. His name is Bakonin. As Artemis Kellogg stood outside his apartment, a black man walked past, pushing a shopping cart up the middle of the street. His shopping cart looked very large. It was covered with plastic bags. The plastic bags appeared to be full of other plastic bags, but really nobody could tell what was inside them. Kellogg didn't wonder what was in the bags. Instead, he was listening to the black man talk to himself. There was no one else for the black man to be talking to. This is what he said. That motherfucker was up there playing some basketball in Portland. Sure enough, motherfuckers better see he was playing some basketball. The black man was wearing white pants that fit tight to his knees. They looked like the pants a football player might wear. Artemis Kellogg turned right from his apartment and started to walk toward downtown. He was walking away from his work at the Waldorf School. He was also walking away from the part of his block where drunk people slept on the sidewalk and where the black man was headed. Actually, Kellogg was walking in the direction of his favorite coffee shop, you see, in San Francisco, people went to coffee shops to write. Drinking coffee was the same as writing in San Francisco. In his bag, Kellogg had a very thin, light laptop. At the coffee shop, he thought he would start his first movie script. Today was the day, he thought. The script would be about the brown people who hijacked the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center. Maybe. Artemis Kellogg wanted to capture the way that the plane crashes on September 11th affected the nation. They started the War on Terror that didn't really make any sense. In war, you saw some terrible things. You even had to do really bad things a lot of the time. That was the, one of the very worst facts of war. Another was that people died. After war, the survivors were often never the same. Recently, doctors had come up with a name for this condition. They called it post Traumatic stress disorder. War was definitely traumatic. Kellogg thought about how his mother, once she had cleaned up the garage after his father killed himself with the shotgun, had never been the same. They should have hired a professional cleaner. The effects of the war on many Americans should have been avoided, Kellogg thought, by just not going to war in the first place. But maybe that was too simple of an approach. 
The most traumatic thing Artemis Kellogg had seen was on television, exactly 12 years before. This made him lucky in a way. His father killing himself with a shotgun was traumatic, but at least he didn't have to see it. Artemis Kellogg knew he was better off in the 21st century, not going off to war and having the internet, but it seemed strange to have experienced such a bad thing in his life only through the television. He thought it was strange how many bad feelings he had about something he had only seen on television. Back in 2001, his television hadn't even been very big, barely big at all, not even 40 inches measured diagonally. As he walked toward the coffee shop carrying his laptop, Artemis Kellogg started to worry. He worried that today wasn't an important day, that he'd made a mistake calling in sick. He worried that his idea for a screenplay wasn't a good one, or that, what was even worse and more likely, he wouldn't be able to write it. What if he couldn't sit still long enough? He wasn't sure, but he did know he had to keep moving. Sharks always kept moving. They could never stop or else they would sink and drown. Kellogg didn't believe that a shark could actually drown in the water. That was where it lived. But he wanted to be like a shark. He moved forward. He was merely having a temporary failure of confidence. Writers experienced this all the time. When he got to the coffee shop, he ordered a large coffee. Coffee was also a cure for temporary failures of confidence. It was something of a wonder drug in this way. Across the room, Kellogg saw a pretty girl working on her laptop. What she was working on, he didn't know. Her name was Emily Plinko, and she was designing a new profile for Match.com. She had been on 11 dates using her old profile on Match.com, and none of them had gone well. Every guy she went on a date with was either a wet noodle or a pervert. A wet noodle was really a boring date. A pervert just wanted to get into her pants. Or worse, some of them wanted to get into her butt, where the farts came from. Emily Plinko was a nice girl from Minnesota. She was 27 years old. Here in San Francisco, she couldn't find a nice boy. If she had stayed in Minnesota, she would have been married and pregnant by now. But she thought she didn't want that. Instead, she wanted to live in San Francisco and have a good job. A boyfriend would have been nice too, but so far, she wasn't having any luck in that department. That was the end of chapter six. In between chapters, I took the opportunity to let my dough finish rising. I took out the dough of the Portuguese sweetbread that I've never made before. It was supposed to have doubled in size, but it didn't, I don't think. And then I cut it into two halves after I kneaded it for a bit. And then I shoved it into two buttered, greased, nine-inch cake pans. Now it's rising again for another 30 minutes. Maybe this will even taste good. And I'm going to read chapter seven for you. Emily Plinko was a software engineer. She built websites for the Internet. This was considered a good job. All day at work, she worked on a website that let you order food from different restaurants without calling them on the phone. People would read your order in the restaurant as an email and make your food, then someone else would pick up the food and bring it to your house on a bicycle. This website was called eat24.com. 
The idea was that people could eat 24 hours a day by ordering food and they would never have to leave their homes. Most of the restaurants on the site closed by 11 p.m. By 3 a.m., all of them were closed for the night. No one could actually eat 24 hours a day. Kellogg got his coffee and sat down two tables away from Emily Plinko. He had an idea for a good story. The screenplay about September 11th could wait. Inspiration had struck. This really would be a special day. Artemis Kellogg drank his coffee and typed. His story was about a young girl who got to study with a famous writer when she was in college. In the story, the girl was a freshman at Daphne College in Massachusetts. She got to study in a creative writing intensive with the famous author Kurt Vonnegut. This was just a few years before Kurt Vonnegut would die, so really his time was very precious. The girl was very lucky. The girl swam on the water polo team at Daphne College. She was a bit of a jock. On the night before she was supposed to submit her application to study with Vonnegut, the great writer, she got drunk. Why not, right? It was what you really went to college to do. When she was drunk, she misread the files on her computer that she meant to email as her application to Kurt Vonnegut's class. Instead of sending the ones that held all her precious writing, the fancy stuff she worked hard on but was really very boring, she sent her private journals instead. These were actually very interesting, titillating even. For a young woman, she had a very dirty mind. The next day, when Vonnegut read through all of the young women's applications, Daphne was an all-girls school, he fell in love with the dirty mind of the young water polo player. He decided to let her into his creative writing intensive. She was the only freshman who got in. This made all of the older girls who didn't get into the intensive very angry at the girl who swam water polo. What did she know, they all thought. They eyed her with extra scrutiny and anger on the quad. Artemis Kellogg looked up. He hadn't noticed the passage of time. This writing must have been really going well, he thought. This really was going to be an important day. He drank a sip of his coffee. It had gone cold. That meant he was really writing. He congratulated himself on being a writer. As a reward for this, he allowed himself another look at Emily Plinko. She was still sitting in the same place. Now she was browsing Facebook to see what her friends in Minnesota were up to. They were having babies. In the moment when Kellogg looked at Emily Plinko, a tiny particle of dust flitted into her eye. The dust had originally been a particle of belly lint in the belly button of a hipster barista. When he stretched and rubbed his belly, lifting his skinny too-short t-shirt, he launched the particle into the air where it got caught up in a gust of hot air from the toaster. It carried up toward the ceiling where it landed on top of a ventilation duct. It had sat there all morning, until just now when it floated down. Emily Plinko had hardly noticed that this particle flitted into her eye. It was really that small. By coincidence, she winked as it landed. This happened just at the moment when Kellogg was looking her way. He became convinced that she was winking at him, like a come-on. And thus, our love story was born. That was chapter 7. Was there a fan noise that was audible to you while I was reading that chapter? If so, I apologize. 
That was our heat pump water heater. It heats the water by blowing a really loud fan. In days of old, I would have definitely done something about that. And now, with the new catch-as-catch-can, lighter on the editing, real-time, real-world version of recording a podcast, I let it stay in. But let me know if you think I should make sure that thing's not on next time. My daughter Willa has come into the basement now, and she's going to cough for you. She just coughed. Would you like to say hello? Hi, and I have a question for my dad. Okay, I will pause the recording to answer your question. Willa was curious about when the dough or the bread would be finished rising and ready to go into the oven. The answer was, in 13 minutes. So she went back upstairs. I'll give you a little bit of chapter 8, so that you'll have much more fun this week. Chapter 8. The truth about Match.com was that you were really better off talking to a random person on the street than trying to find a date on the internet. In person, you had a better chance of things working out. But walking up to a person on the street was very intimidating. It was scary. The great fear was that the person you walked up to, and maybe anyone else within earshot, would think you were an insane lunatic. They might think your brain had been overrun with bad chemicals, and you needed to take a pill. Or pills. Fear of being considered crazy or full of bad chemicals was one of the driving forces for people not doing most of the things they wanted to. By and large, this was an instinct that paid off, but in this case it made them use a dating website that wasn't nearly as effective as risking crazy behavior to actually just talk to someone they were attracted to. In the case of Match.com, this instinct made them spend time on the internet, creating a profile which was a version of you that didn't really exist. Other people could read this profile and think they knew you, but they didn't. Often, when you went out to meet these people, the pieces of the puzzle didn't connect, and you had a boring or slightly awkward time. The big but was that maybe you would have a good date. Maybe a date from Match.com would even lead to sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse was really a fun thing to have, as we have already covered. Bainbridge McGee had a medium-old man's version of a profile on Match.com. He was only 47, remember? On one hand, he didn't want people who saw it to know who he was. It wouldn't very well suit a famous author to just be trolling for dates on the internet. This wasn't what famous authors did. No. Instead, they had groupies throwing their panties up on stage to them at readings. At least that's what McGee wanted everyone to believe. All writers wanted to perpetuate this myth. Listen, when McGee had first become a famous author, writers did reading tours and were mobbed afterward by groupies who wanted them to autograph copies of their books. Back then, it wasn't hard for McGee to get them back to his hotel room. They were always waiting around for him at the bar. By 2007, the year Kurt Vonnegut died, writers hardly did tours anymore. Nobody came out to readings, not even groupies. There weren't groupies for writers anymore. Or if there were, they were only out there on the internet. They didn't leave their homes. The main reason groupies didn't go to bookstores anymore and writers didn't go out on tour to have lots of sex in hotel rooms was the internet. The internet had become the biggest place for buying books ever.
This was because of a website called Amazon.com. Don't worry about Amazon. They're our friends. I promise. Really, believe me. I promise. Everyone was worried that soon the bookstores wouldn't be there. Of course this wasn't true. Bainbridge McGee was positive of that. I was positive of that. We don't need to worry about the bookstores. I promise. Not the independent ones. They're all as safe as Bainbridge McGee's sex life, which we'll get to. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but the internet actually helped McGee out in the dating department. Big time. And that feels like a good spot to leave off for this week. Maybe you can hear my wife upstairs singing. She's singing. I seem to have adopted the deadpan affect of the novel as much protein as an egg. It's carrying right over into my after-reading talk. What else is carrying over into my after-reading talk? Well, you know the part about how Artemis Kellogg, who was a young writer, was having a failure of confidence on his way to the coffee shop because he wasn't sure if his writing would be any good when he wrote it? Well, that's happening to me, too. I've decided to podcast the director's cut, which is the longer version of As Much Protein as an Egg. I decided this because I think the longer version has more random stuff in it and is therefore more fun. I think it's fun, but you might think, this isn't fun. What's up with all this random stuff? In my mind, in the basement, I wonder if you would have enjoyed hearing the straight version with edits, you know, the one that's about 40,000 words, instead of this version, which is 60,000 words. I'm second-guessing myself. Today, I have second-guessed myself. <sighs> I'll just take a deep breath and breathe into that. I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing. For example, I cut out the part about the black man walking down the street yelling to himself. But when I was writing that day, I had written that part in because it really happened outside of my apartment in San Francisco. Sometimes you write things in that happen in the real world, and sometimes they fit, and sometimes they don't. In this case, I think the black man yelling is kind of borderline. It's a little touchy. Maybe it's not entirely PC or correct or perfect thing to be saying, but it's there. And I wonder... When it's all said and done, if the director's cut is the best version or not. I think somewhere in the middle, there's a version that's about 50,000 words that would be the better of the two. But for now, we don't have that. We have the director's cut, which is the Francis Ford Coppola version of Seth Harwood, the one who's full of beans, vim and vigor, ready to take on the world and carve out his whole entire story for readers. And on the other end, we have the edited version, the trim and lean, Sugar Ray Leonard, fighting machine version of the story that will knock you right out of the park, perhaps. In any case, I hope you're having fun listening to the podcast. I hope you're having an opportunity to do some baking at home. I hope if you're living close to me and you have one of those big mixers that has its own bowl and goes up and down, and sort of like goes down, and has its own thing, with a kneading 
attachment on it and a paddle attachment that you will bring it to my house and let me borrow it. We could have used that today for our bread. If our bread doesn't work out, that's probably the reason why. And you, gentle listener, I hope you're okay. Maybe Kelly's listening to music up there. I appreciate you. If you're looking to support this podcast, you could go to Patreon and click on one of the ways to support. I'm coming up with new levels of ways to support. They'll have new names, but they're still the same money. I'll let you know when that gets all set up. Because really, I hope you're doing well, and this is here for you. You can subscribe on all the places, the podcasts, the smodcasts, iTunes, all these places. I've put up a link on my website, sethharwood.com, which has a link to the first episode. You can find it right there. And there's a new page about the new podcast. You can go to sethharwood.com slash new podcast, new hyphen podcast, uh, and that will show you where you can subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, Shout Engine, and Stitcher. Is there another place you'd like to get a podcast? Let me know. I miss you. I hope you're well. And keep buying bananas and avocados. They're the best thing in times of Corona. Now take care.